This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Russell St. John on pulpit practices to help people get the point. Russell is lead pastor of Twin Oaks Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2021 General Assembly. Let's listen as Russell St. John considers how to help people get the point. Well, uh, it's a, a joy to be here with you this morning, and thank you so much for, for coming to this, this uh, seminar. My name is Russ. I'm a teaching elder from about uh, 30 minutes west of here out in the Burbs. I also uh, teach preaching at Covenant Seminary. Did a doctor of ministry and a PhD in homiletics, so I love this stuff. Uh, and insofar as you are eager to miss out on the assembly and its proceedings, after we're done here, uh, I would be delighted to hang out and field whatever questions and talk as long as you want to about stuff revolving around preaching. So I love this quote. This is from John Albert Broadus, and you may know that John Broadus was a Reformed Baptist preacher. He was a New Testament scholar. He taught New Testament and preaching at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He was one of the founding professors of that institution. And Broadus said to his students, we must strive not merely to render it possible that the people should understand us, but impossible that they should misunderstand. Now, what a task that is. But a great task for those of you who teach and uh, preach because our job, and for those of you who are teaching elders, uh, the, even the title, teaching elder, presumes that you have something to teach, and it also presumes that you are competent to teach. And a large part of teaching is to take things that are complex and make them simple, to take things that are unclear and to make them clear. And so uh, what we'll try to do today is to talk about ways to help do that. Now, I have some foundational convictions, some of which you may share and some of which you may not, and so if you, if you don't, then then that's fine. I have one that I've added to the list that's not there under the title uh, Foundations because I assume it, but a friend of mine yesterday exhorted me not to assume. So one of my foundational uh, uh, commitments is this, that the primary purpose of preaching is not to communicate. The primary purpose of preaching is not to communicate God's word. The primary pur- purpose of preaching is to glorify God. So preaching's chief end is the same as the chief end of man. It is to glorify God. Now, 
I am convinced that preaching most glorifies the Lord when it in fact communicates with God's people. But uh, when we take uh, the true purpose of preaching, which is the glory of God, and replace it with communicating with people, uh, then we're going to fudge on the ways God wants us to communicate because we've made communication an idol. And you see that all across evangelicalism as people will employ all manner of fads and gimmicks in order to quote unquote communicate, but what they've done is move away from the work of preaching that God has called us to do. So I believe that uh, preaching is an outward and ordinary means of grace. Shorter Catechism 88 makes this very clear that it's one of the instruments. And when we talk about a means of grace, we're talking about an instrument, an instrument that God uses to impart saving and sanctifying grace. Uh, that doesn't preclude God's use of inward or extraordinary means. It simply means that God has bound himself to use the word and sacraments and prayer for the saving and sanctifying of his people. The Holy Spirit is the power behind preaching. It's the Holy Spirit who takes this very simple thing that we call talking. We preach, we talk to other people. And in and of myself, my words have no power to transform your heart. My words have no power to redeem you. My words have no power to renew your mind. My words don't have any power to do those things. But the Holy Spirit takes human speech in the form of preaching and he takes a merely human activity and does supernatural things with it. So Shorter Catechism 89 talks about the Spirit of God makes the preaching, but, uh, the reading, but especially the preaching of the Word, an effectual means of grace, an effectual tool by which God imparts saving and sanctifying grace. And you know what uh, 1 Corinthians 3.7 says, that neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but the Lord who gives the growth, or the Lord who gives the increase. Those help us to, to lay this foundation, and I want to say this very plainly because we're going to talk about stuff to do to help communicate with people, but I want to say that no technique guarantees quote-unquote results. The Lord is sovereign over the outcomes of uh, the preacher's words. And uh, it has been said for a long time, and I don't know who this quote can be attributed to, but the same sun that hardens the clay softens the wax. So the same word of the gospel may very well be used of the Lord to harden someone in his sin, while the person sitting next to him may be softened by that same word. And that choice of, of how the Lord uses your preaching is not yours, it's the Lord's. So the Lord is sovereign over the outcomes and no technique guarantees results. There is, I will give you no silver bullet with which you will leave and say, if only I do this in the pulpit, then my people will hear me. If only I do this in the pulpit, then the church will grow. And, and people will try to, to sell those things. But I don't think theologically we can, we can agree with that. I also am of the conviction that human use of divine instruments matters. So for instance, uh, if a man wants a nail to go into a piece of wood, does he smack it with his hand? No, uh, hopefully he doesn't. If he's an intelligent agent, he will find the right instrument, the right tool, the right means, and he will use a hammer, and by means of the hammer, he will drive the nail into uh, a piece of wood. Well, the Holy Spirit is an intelligent agent, and he uses the instrumentality of preaching now, uh, you, you could ask this question, well, if the Holy Spirit is the one who gives the increase, and if he determines what to do with preaching, then why should I work on my preaching? Well, um, 
if a human being is an intelligent agent and can choose the right instrument to accomplish the right job, then how much more the Holy Spirit? How much more is it, uh, does it make sense that the Holy Spirit will more often use a sermon that is actually fit to communicate with God's people over against using a sermon that is unfit because of, because of the sloth sometimes of the pastor? to communicate with God's people. So I do believe that divine use of human instruments actually matters. In other words, it's important to work hard at preaching. And most of the really outstanding preachers that I've ever heard uh, in my life, that I've ever listened to, they are no doubt uh, men who are gifted in preaching, but they've also worked very hard, often for decades, to become outstanding preachers. So that leads me to this conviction that hard work comprises a large part of fidelity. I did uh, my uh, PhD research on a man named Robert Louis Dabney, an old school Southern Presbyterian. Uh, he taught homiletics at Union Theological Seminary in Virginia for about 30 years, uh, both before and after the, the Civil War. And one of the things that Dabney talked about with his students is he said, I want you to imagine a laborer in the field. Uh, and he, the laborer in, in Dabney's illustration was basically a lumberjack. And I want you to imagine that this man is gifted by God with great size and great strength, a mammoth of a man, a Paul Bunyan, as it were. And he said, uh, this man, because of his natural strength, because of his natural endowments, is able to cut more wood with a dull ax in an average day than a lesser man can with a razor-sharp axe. And he said, but, but if he loves the master and wants to do the best labor for him that he can, then even if it's late in the afternoon, he will pause and he will sharpen his axe, knowing that the sharpening of his axe will produce a greater yield for the master whom he loves. And it was Dabney's way of saying, strive to be the sharpest instrument in the hands of the Holy Spirit that you are capable of being. And that comes through diligent labor and work at, at uh, the work of preaching. And I think the, the larger catechism helps in this. In larger catechism uh, 159, as it talks about how the word of God is to be preached by those who are called, uh, one of the phrases in it is that the word of God is to be preached wisely, and the preacher is to apply himself to the necessities and capacities of the hearers. In other words, uh, understand what it means for people to try to listen to a sermon and work diligently to speak in such a way that you help them understand what you're saying. So uh, some of the things that I'll be talking about are, are uh, techniques and or advice from the field of rhetoric. And sometimes rhetoric gets a bad name because people think that what rhetoric is doing is imposing rules upon you. And rhetoric doesn't impose rules of speech. What it does is uh, offer to you uh, a list of characteristics of speech when it's done well. It's observations developed through time. When someone speaks well, why do they speak well? What, can, you, can you identify what is happening when you recognize that someone has done something excellently when they're speaking? And that's all rhetoric is, a series of observations. Rules, of course, are made to be broken. Sometimes you will hear a sermon that breaks all kinds of homiletical rules, and it's an outstanding sermon. Because the, the person who preaches it is so consumed with the message, is so passionate about what, what he is saying, that in some sense that 
that ethos overcomes the structural or, or public speaking errors that, uh, that fill the, the message. So those are, those are some of my assumptions. Those are my uh, foundational convictions about why we're going to talk about stuff to do in preaching that helps people to understand. So practical helps. Why does your congregation need help? Well, firstly, I'd suggest that they can't see your manuscript. And even a visual outline is inadequate. Some of you will print an outline in the bulletin or as a bulletin insert, allow people the opportunity to take notes. Uh, but I'll simply ask you by your own experience, how many times have you had an outline in front of you, you have been following and listening to the preacher, and it dawns on you about three quarters of the way through the second point that the preacher is actually on the second point. And you never knew that he left the first point. You never knew that he got to the second point, And you have been taking notes under main point one when he's actually on main point two. How many times has that happened to you? So simply having a visual outline doesn't, uh, doesn't necessarily guarantee comprehension. We preachers must do verbal things in order to help people follow us and comprehend where we're going. The congregation can't see your manuscript. Uh, secondly, uh, our literary training in some sense cripples our ability to communicate verbally. And, and, and part of the reason for this is, uh, is that by the time you have graduated from seminary and you have uh, entered a pulpit, you have had years and years of of high school and college and graduate training in reading and writing. And you will not have graduated from seminary without the ability to write a paper, to structure it reasonably well, to be competent in written expression. But written expression is fundamentally different than oral expression. It's fundamentally different than verbal expressions. Just as a, a single example, when you write a paper and you're describing something, you use descriptive words. If you're describing the sun, you know, you might describe it as bright in one sentence, as illuminating in the next sentence, as shining in the sentence after that, etc. So writing demands that you use variety of descriptors. You must, and if you simply describe it in each sentence as bright, how is your English professor going to respond? Do you not know synonyms for bright? It will, it will sound childish. It will sound redundant. But when you're speaking, your, your listener won't necessarily f understand that you're talking about the same object in the sky when you use bright and shining and illuminating. When you're speaking, you must rigorously use the word bright over and over and over again so that every time that word repeats, they know you're talking about the same thing like a metronome. So often our literary training actually teaches us to speak poorly because we write our sermons and then for the most part read them. Now, uh, sometimes you know, you'll use, use a more extended outline. But even in the writing of the sermon, we write it to be read, and then we speak it, and it sounds like we're reading an essay. And the people can't read the essay. And the ear does not respond in the same way that the eye does. So our literary training sometimes makes it very difficult for us to communicate verbally. And that leads to this conviction. You must signal to your listeners what matters to you.
You must signal to them what matters to you, and you have to help them listen to you profitably. So the, the bulk of this, this uh, seminar is going to talk about how do we do that? Uh, what are some ways that we can signal to our listeners what matters to us? After all, if I, if I only talk like this all the time, and every word and every sentence in my sermon is like this, and I'm talking about how Corinth is a port city, and dot, 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 and then I say, and don't sin as they sinned because they were idolaters, and da da. Well, I'm not verbally giving you any reason to believe that the exhortation not to sin like they sinned is any different than the information that Corinth was a port city. Verbally, I've done nothing to indicate to you that the exhortation not to sin is actually more important than the background information that Corinth is a port city. So how do I help my listeners verbally when they're listening to me to understand that some information is actually more important than other information? Well, there are ways that we can do this. So I think there are three categories of ways to help listeners. There's, uh, and I, I categorize them as structural, verbal, and preparatory. And we're just kind of walk through each of them. So structural, things that you can do to help them follow your train of thought and your outline. And the first of them is billboard. It's been, it's been said over and over again, and we, we tend to laugh at this. Um, tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you just said. Well, that just sounds so wooden. It does. And it also communicates. Um, and, and I think this comes also, in some respects, from our literary training. Uh, our job, your job, brothers, is not to be subtle. Your job is not to be elegant. Your job is, is not to be nuanced. Your job is to take things that are complex and make them simple. Your job is to take things that are obscure and make them clear. Now, in my own ministry, I, I delight when somebody comes up to me after the service of worship and says, Pastor, you said A, B, and C, and I disagree with you. And I think, praise the Lord. We can have a conversation about that. What I hate is when somebody comes up to me afterwards and says, Pastor, you said this, and did you... Did you mean that or what? And then I think, at that point I failed because it's my job to be clear. Even if I'm wrong, I'm going to be clearly wrong, <laughs> right? So billboard, and that means tell them where you're going. It can be something as simple as, and I, I do this more frequently than not, as I introduce the scripture, I'll introduce to them where, uh, not only where we're going, but why they should go with me. Why should you listen? Why should this matter to you that I'm reading this ancient text that was written 2,000 years ago to a group of immoral people in a port city in Greece called Corinth? Why? And in some way, shape, or form, help them see themselves in the people. Help them see that they have the same heart problem that the people have. Brian Chappell calls us the FCF, the fallen condition focus. And the fallen condition focus is simply answering the question, why? Why should you listen? Why should you care? Um, but tell them, uh, so I will say things like, uh, as we read this text, listen for how the Apostle Paul commands you to pursue holiness in the midst of an unholy society. Listen for that. Well, so now you've given them an indication already of where we're going and why, we should, why, why you should listen. Have you ever gotten 15 minutes into listening to a pastor's message and you have no idea where he's going or why? Because he hasn't told you. Just tell them. This is what I'm going to talk about. Here's where we're going. Here's, here's, 
Here's why you should listen. Be blunt. Uh, your people will rise up and call you blessed if you are, if you are blunt. So I would say billboard. Secondly, use repetition. Repetition feels weird as we get older, but how many parents have had the experience of reading Good Night Moon 857,000 times to your child, right? Children love repetition, and then as we get older, we don't like it anymore. But I want to I wanna give you a, uh, a hint. The ear never stops loving repetition. The ear never stops loving repetition. Repetition is a way of signaling to your people this matters. And so again, if I, if I say, well, Corinth was a port city, and et cetera, here, what I will do is I'll say Corinth was a port city, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then I come to, and you must not pursue idolatry as they did. You must not pursue idolatry as they did. Now the ear automatically understands that matters more than the stuff that preceded it because he said it twice. How simple is that? Super simple. But the ear will delight in repetition. It will delight in hearing the same sentence, the same words uh, come down through the, the, the sermon. So if you use repetition, your people will understand that this thing matters to you more than the previous thing you said. And if you couple repetition with restatement, uh, you will help your people. A restatement is simply saying the same thing in a different way. So if you say, you must not pursue idolatry as they did. You must not chase after the things of this world. You must not pursue idolatry in the same way they pursued idolatry. So you've said the same thing in essence three times in two different ways because not every phrase is going to catch every listener. But if you repeat and restate, the ear loves it. It will even sound weird to you as you say it. It will feel weird to you. I just said that sentence. Do I really need to say that sentence again? I don't care if it feels weird to you. Say the sentence again. Repeat and restate often. Your listeners love it. And and you have to care more about the sheep than about how it makes you feel weird to say it twice in a row. But we feel weird saying it twice in a row because it would look absolutely bizarre twice in a row in a written document and we have written our sermon. So our eye is freaking out that it's written twice in a row, but the ear loves it. So part of this is uh, write uh, as you would speak rather than as you would read a document. So one of the things I will often do very simply, and I generally preach from a, uh, a fairly extended outline that has bullet points and whatnot, but I will, at the end of a particular sentence, I will put in parentheses or brackets, repeat, underline it. And, and when I come to that, I will repeat that statement because repetition and restatement will bless your people. It will help them to understand this thing that you have just said is the thing that matters. And I would say this, perfect your transitions. Uh, indicate where one thought ends and another thought begins. Again, how many times have you listened to somebody who has no idea that you're on your second main point because you have not summarized the first main point, you have not repeated and restated the first main point, and you have not billboarded to them or given them an indication that you were now moving on to the second point. And sometimes your transition from the first point to the second point will be one word. You will say something like, next, or secondly, 
how many people are only and all, you who preach, when you listen to sermons, you're only and always attentive to every word and your mind never drifts? Anyone? <laughs> Me too. So if they miss one word or they don't understand the referent to that word, when you say next, you actually mean my next main point is then you're depending on a word, maybe a short phrase, maybe something that's kind of said under your breath because you're preparing to launch into the substance, the meat of the second point. They don't even know you've left the first. So perfect your transitions. There are very few parts of a sermon that I will actually really block out almost sentence for sentence because I don't want to be reading. But I will block out almost sentence for sentence transitions. Because I want them to know where we're going, how we got there, how this fits into in the broad whole. So those are some structural elements that, will, that, that if you do these things, then you will help people to understand where you're going. They will be able to listen with uh, great profit uh, to you. But I think also uh, there is verbal help that you can give them. Uh, things, uh, the way that you speak can help them. And under verbal variety, you have really three tools at your disposal, tempo, volume, and pauses. Now, for some of you, this is the tempo of your speech on a regular basis. And if you talk like this through the sermon, and then you come to the point where you say, and you must be holy, you must pursue holiness. That tempo has just done something to the listener. That tempo change indicates that matters. And the people who have tuned out, they tune in. At exactly the point you want them to tune in, and it's the tempo change that has done it. Or if your standard way of talking, which is like me in the pulpit, and I talk like this all the time, and then all of a sudden you slow down and say you must pursue holiness. Now that's powerful because it signals to people, again, this matters to you in a way that other things haven't mattered to you. So tempo is your friend. So is volume. Some preachers are very sedate and very quiet like this, and this is how they talk. And if you come to a point when, when you know, in the, in the course of your preaching and da-da-da-da-da, and all of a sudden you get loud, well, people are going to listen. Or some preachers scream. You know who you are. <laughs> right? And your normal way of talking is like this. And then you get really quiet and almost whisper. Both of those, whether you're normally quiet and you get loud or you're normally loud and you get quiet, the change in volume signals to your listeners what matters to you. It helps them to listen to you profitably. So tempo, volume, and then pauses. Uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that I think pauses are so, so important is we have a tendency to want to rush through information. I got all this stuff I need to say, and there's a clock on the back of the wall, and the clock on the back of the wall just keeps moving. So if I pause for a few seconds, one, it feels weird to me, like a two-second pause to me feels like three years, right? It doesn't feel like three years to the people listening to you. It's barely enough time for them to, to swallow and wiggle in their pew. I mean, they, uh, but the other thing is I just paused and that two-second pause is two seconds off the clock that I'm never getting back. 
But I've seen the value in pausing. Uh, I, I, I noticed this even as a seminary student uh, when Brian Chapel preached. I think he builds his pauses into his sermons. They're purposeful. He will, he will talk about something and be going, clipping along at a pretty decent pace, and then he will pause. And then he'll pick up again. But that three or four seconds is, is incredible because, because he'll pause usually right after he has said something particularly profound or right before he's about to say something particularly profound. And in either case, people notice the pastor just stopped talking. Pastors never stop talking. The pastor just stopped talking. And so, it, again, it, it keys them in that either the thing that, that he just said, I want you to ponder that, and I'm actually giving you three or four seconds now. And it often comes at the end of a, of a difficult question. Are you pursuing holiness? Pause. Don't just ask it. Actually, ask it in such a way that you expect them right now in the pew to wrestle with that answer from their own conscience and in their own heart. So this verbal variety, you can pursue changes in tempo, volume, and pauses, and these differentiate between mundane information and the stuff that you want them uh, to cling to. I would urge, uh, and I know that different seminaries do this differently, so I'm going to present a, 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 here a a way of thinking about preaching that may be different than the way that you were trained or the way that, that your own conviction is, and, and I certainly leave this to your own conscience. I would argue that you use a normal, elevated speech. And what I mean by that is that some preachers will have a preacher voice. So if I talk to you and, and we're just engaging one-on-one, -on -one, you're a very engaging person, and then you get up into the pulpit and you say, Dear congregation, let us now turn to... 1 Corinthians 7, like that dude never talks like that in conversation. He, he has, his personality, everything about him has just evaporated and he's gone now and he's become something of a, something of a, a homiletical robot. Phillips Brooks, who was a 19th century Episcopal preacher, defined preaching as truth through personality. And he, what he meant by that is that preaching is necessarily incarnational. God has made you from the ground up as a unique human being. You have a unique voice, a unique set of gestures, a unique set of facial expressions, a unique way of speaking and approaching the scripture, a unique diction, a unique tempo. All of that about you is unique and it's actually all under the sovereignty of your God who will use you. He won't just use your words, he will use you. The man whom he has created, called and equipped, he will use you in preaching. And so, uh, especially I found in, in the South, some men will put on a preacher voice, and often it's real breathy. And they would never talk like this in conversation. Let's go to the football game. They would never talk about a football game, but when they get in the pulpit, they use a breath. So, whether it's really formal or really breathy, use normal elevated speech. And what I mean by that is I don't want, uh, and I talk to seminary students about this, don't talk in a glib way in the way that you hear the, the, the talk jock on the radio in the morning or d the way that people talk on a sitcom or in movies, we shouldn't be glib. But when you are having a serious conversation with your peers and you're really interested in something, then that way is the way that you talk. Because when you do so, it's your normal patterns of speech, but it's slightly elevated. 
because you're talking about something that really matters to you. It's, it's serious to you. And when you have in mind how, how I speak when I'm engaged in a serious conversation with my peers, then what it does is it increases your normal gestures. Okay, so uh, these are the lesser horns. And some of you like to preach from the lesser horns. These are the greater horns. And some of you like to preach from the greater horns, right? Uh, nobody does that when they're talking. When I'm just having a conversation with you, my gestures, my facial expressions, and my body language are all natural because I'm having a conversation with you. So when you think about yourself having normal elevated speech, it increases natural gesturing, natural body language, and natural facial expressions, all of which communicate. And it's very different than this. This precludes gesturing, but it's amazing the things that people get from gestures. So for instance, in the English-speaking world, this is the most antagonistic thing that you can do. This is in your face. You can do nothing more uh, visibly violent to your congregation than this, especially if you start wagging it. Like, only slightly less aggressive is the karate chop. You can also do the Bill Clinton thumb, right? There, so this, this means everybody calm down. So if you're talking about something that is controversial and you do this, you're telling half the people in the congregation you're wrong and you just need to calm down. Who has ever told their spouse, you need to calm down? <laughs> that works really well. Okay, so this, this means let's consider it together. This means I'm the expert at this and you should listen to me. And this is the classic Ronald Reagan, the most disarming gesture in the English speaking world. Ah, well. This disarms, and it invites people to listen and to communicate. People move their hands. They talk with their hands when you're using normal elevated speech, and it helps to communicate. So uh, also use uh, interrogatives. And on the uh, handout that I gave you, it says tinterrogatives. I'm sorry about that. TNT rogatives. Maybe that means explosive questions. I don't know. Uh, but ask questions. Ask your congregation questions. Questions are a fantastic thing, especially questions of comprehension. If you've, if you've explained something, uh, does that make sense? Are you following? Do you understand? Especially when you have to define a difficult theological word. I mean, how many people use the word propitiation in daily speech? <laughs> Nobody does. And so you'll have to define it for the congregation. And after you've defined it, ask them, does that make sense? Do you understand? And you will get people who will nod, and you'll get people who will just kind of do that. And then you can circle back around and explain it again. And don't stop explaining it until people have comprehension of it. So ask questions of comprehension. Ask questions of insight. When you, when you uh, explain something from the text, ask them, do you see that? Do you see that in the text? Do you see it's not just me saying that? Do you see that Paul is actually saying that? Ask them questions of insight, and then ask them questions of obedience. Uh, are you pursuing holiness? Will you mortify your sin? Is this what you believe in practice? Um, those things engage. Uh, they, they, take, they take your sermon out of full lecture mode and just for a moment turn it into a conversation. Just for a moment, you're engaging the conscience of the listener as the listener then must 
answer those questions internally in some way, shape, or form. So use interrogatives, use questions. Uh, avoid the verbal pivot. You might also call this the introduction to a rabbit trail. So a rabbit trail is when you go on for five minutes on something that doesn't matter. But I think more dangerous is something that I will call the verbal pivot. Remember, all they can do is hear. And so you've told them we're going to talk about the necessity of pursuing holiness. And catch yourself when you say words like this. Well, as an aside, now what you've done, what you've done to the ear of the listener is we've been going this direction and you have verbally pivoted. And now they've all pivoted with you and we're going this direction. But really, it's just an aside. They don't know that, even if you say, as an aside. Uh, it, that's, about as, uh, that's about as helpful as a pastor says, uh, well, in conclusion, 14 minutes before he finishes the sermon, right? So they don't, the, as an aside, so now they've pivoted this direction with you, but you know it was only an aside, so now you pivot back. Okay, well, I thought we were talking about that. No, we weren't ever actually talking about that. We're talking about this. And so they pivot back with you. And then you say, interestingly, and you start on this route, and they pivot with you. And they're, okay, uh, I thought we were talking about this, but then we were talking about that, and then this again, but now we're talking, okay, I'm with you, Pastor. And then you pivot back. You do that about three times. You have lost the congregation because you have brought up things that are interesting to you that are on a side that are, so if you find yourself saying, you know, by the way, just leave that on the cutting room floor. Uh, so a sermon is about one thing. Everything in the sermon should direct toward that one thing. Uh, uh, Dr. Chapel used to say that uh, a baseball and a handful of gravel weigh about the same, but then he would ask, which is easier to catch if I toss it to you? So all the information in a sermon should be about one thing and should feed into the one point that is being pressed home upon the consciences of, of the listeners. So every time you verbally pivot away from the main thing that you're addressing, be prepared for people to, to lose the way, especially if you verbally pivot in the introduction. The introduction should be incredibly focused and clear. One of the things that I, I think younger preachers struggle with more than older preachers is use the second person address, especially in application. We, as preachers, have a tendency to say we, us, and our instead of you. But when I say to a group full of men, we struggle with lust, eh, okay, if I say you, struggle with lust, and you know it. That is a profoundly different experience. You must say you, because then people hear, and it engages their conscience in a way that we, us, and our don't. We should pursue evangelism in the church. Yep, pastor, and you just get these head nods, like bobbleheads, evangelism. And we should pursue that, and everybody agrees, we should pursue evangelism in the church until until I say, you, personally, must be engaged in the work of evangelism. And it will look differently for each of you, but you are an evangelist. You are either a faithful evangelist or a faithless evangelist, but you are an evangelist. Now, it's very different than saying, we should all be evangelists. So, we, us, and our has a tendency to allow people to fly under the radar of their own conscience. Whereas when you say you, 
it forces them to engage and to see themselves in the text, to see themselves as, as deserving or, or require, the text requiring of them whatever it requires. Uh, part of the reason for that is that ultimately what do you want to do? Well, you want to press the claims of the text upon the conscience of the listener. You're never going to change anybody. I'm never going to change anybody. Uh, but the Holy Spirit uses the human conscience. And when you use the word you, uh, it engages the conscience in a way that we, us, and our simply doesn't. Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, the Puritans used to talk about a good sermon as being one that disturbed the comfortable and comforted the disturbed. But the point is, it didn't leave anybody untouched because it was direct and it was personal. Um, so, uh, pastor, you're meddling. You ever heard that? You've stopped preaching and now you started meddling. It's usually a pretty good sign. Uh, part of your responsibility as, as uh, a teacher or preacher of God's word is to step on people's toes, to expose to them their sacred cows, to uh, press them with the claims of the text, to make them uncomfortable in their sin, or to comfort those who are disturbed by the travails of the world, but don't just leave them able, mindlessly like a bobblehead, to nod at general principles of the scripture, but to engage with specific commands. And lastly, as far as verbal help, I would say avoid pulpit commentary. Commentators enjoy a luxury that preachers don't. Commentators can chase all manner of rabbit trails. They can explore information and ideas that, that are not really germane to what you're saying, but they're really interesting, right? Uh, but don't give them the, the sweat of your exegetical labor. Give them the fruit of your exegetical labor. Uh, commentators have the luxury of going all over the place, but you as a preacher don't. And if the, something that the commentator has said is so interesting that you really want to share it with your congregation, write them a letter, send them an email, blog it out, but don't include it in the sermon unless it's really genuinely germane. And that requires uh, you to edit, 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 edit. Uh, I think a way of comparing this is to say this. <clears throat> There's a fundamental difference between a poet and a hymnist. A poet intentionally uses vagueness lack of specificity. The poet wants each reader to read his or her own experience and meaning into the text. The poet invites conversation by means of ambiguity. The hymnist, if he or she does their job well, leaves nothing ambiguous because singing, according to Colossians 3.16, is an extension of the teaching ministry of the church. And if the teaching ministry is to be precise, then the singing ministry should be just as theologically precise. There shouldn't be ambiguity. Both of them create verses, but one thrives on ambiguity of expression and the other thrives on specificity of expression. So think of uh, a commentator as introducing um, informational ambiguity. Whereas a preacher, you must hold tight to informational specificity. So those are some of the, some of the things verbally that you can do to, to help your congregation understand. And the last category of things may, may be the most uh, helpful, and that's preparatory help. 
Uh, I'm a firm believer that no man should preach from a manuscript because preaching from a manuscript is a variety of exalted reading. And some men learn to read really well from a manuscript. But when you've written a manuscript, you have written something. And written expression and oral expression are fundamentally different forms of expression. And no matter how skillfully you read it, your congregation will know, because they've had conversations with you, that you are not talking with them. You are reading to them. Now, in some congregations, that's what they're accustomed to, and that's acceptable. Um, but I, I think that there's a better way. There's a better way to engage people in a way that helps them to understand, and that is when you practice your sermon or when you think about uh, a sermon, think about ideas versus words. We become slaves to our manuscripts when we write a manuscript and, hey, that turn of phrase was great. Now I need to use that turn of phrase. I need to say it in this exact way. But I want you to focus on not memorizing the words of your manuscript or the words that you're going to speak to the people, but the ideas. There are only three or four ideas, main ideas in any given sermon, and you can remember ideas. Moreover, if you know the ideas well, you will never lack the words to express them. So if I were to ask you today, in 30 seconds, tell me how you met your wife. You don't need to pull out a manuscript. You don't even need a note card. You know. You know how you met your wife, and you can explain to me how you met your wife. And if three months from now I asked you, in 30 seconds, tell me how you met your wife, you would tell the exact same story, but you would use different words. You see, when you know the ideas you want to communicate, you will not suffer lack of words. You've been speaking your entire life, and you have to trust that in the, in the communication of an idea, you will have words with which to communicate that idea. They might not be the exact words that you planned on Tuesday morning but they will communicate. So think about practicing ideas rather than practicing particular words. And if you know your ideas, you will not lack words. And then, then what you can do is go into the pulpit with something that blocks out your ideas so that you have in front of you a safety net, so to speak. You've got it on paper. Your ideas are there. But you can talk. You've been doing it your entire life. You can get up, and in the same way, you do not need to write out how you met your wife. You can, you can teach that. You can speak it. And it might not be exactly the same every time you say it, but it will communicate. And the second thing I would say as far as preparation is practice out loud. Uh, have you ever had the experience of, let's say you're in your second main point and you're, you're explaining something, and in the process of preaching it, you realize this doesn't work. It looked good on paper, but now that I'm saying it, it doesn't work. But now it's too late. Do not let Sunday morning be the first time you have ever heard your sermon out loud. Practice out loud. I, I, I tell my secretary, I'm closing the door now, not talking to myself. I'm not going crazy. I'm preaching at the wall. And I will preach through my sermon three, four, five times prior to getting in the pulpit on Sunday morning because some of those things that I thought were going to work really well, when I actually say them, they don't. They just don't. And so then I, I go back and I think, well, I, I've got to say this differently. So don't let Sunday morning be the first time you have heard your sermon, but practice it out loud because, again, 
the entire point of, in many respects, the point of the seminar is there's a fundamental difference between written communication and oral communication. And so if you're about to communicate orally, speak it to yourself before you preach it. Because you're not only a preacher, you're a listener. And you can hear what's going to work and what's not going to work. So practice it out loud. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.